Hello, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. And I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guest today is Adele Hayatin. Adele is an Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. She's an economist and demographer specializing in comparative international demographics and focusing on economic and policy implications of U.S. and global demographic shifts. Adele Hayatin joins us today to discuss her new book, New Landscapes of Population Change, a Demographic World Tour. Adele, thanks for taking part of the book club. Thank you. So let's get one thing off the table right away. If you speak to the British singer of the same first name as you and you call her Adele, she gets quite huffy because she says it's Adele. So is it Adele or Adele? It's Adele. And I had it first. <laughs> okay. Since you do demographics, is there any demographic shift in that name? Are women naming their kids after the singer or is the name Adele remain rather static in terms of baby names? I don't know. Well, I looked it up myself. Actually, there's no bump. But then again, I don't think there's been a big bump across from Oprah's and Madonna's either. So congratulations. You get to keep your first name. Right. Thanks. So let's talk a little bit first about you before we get into the book, Adele. I'm always curious when I talk to fellows is that how it is they ended up at the Hoover Institution, what brought them, not just the institution, but their particular brand of learning. So let's first of all talk about your journey to Hoover. Uh, and it's an interesting story. It involves a great man who we miss very much named George Schultz. Right. Well, let me start earlier than that when I first got my name, Adele. Uh, so my interest in demographics happened at when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, when it was still country, which means I grew up in a case study of population change. I thought I would go to the same school as my brothers and brother and sisters, which was a little red brick schoolhouse. But no, the county was on a building boom to accommodate the population growth. So mm -hmm. I ended up going to three different new schools over a few years, including one with a split shift. I wondered where all my classmates had come from, uh, but mostly I wondered how the county got it so wrong. I was, it was only later that I realized I was part of this baby boomer bulge, likened to a pig in a python with, with kids coming into elementary school and then going right. to high school and then going to college and then going to the into the workforce and finally now approaching retirement. So my interest in population trends began then and crystallized when I became a business economist, focusing on real estate markets. I spent most of my career in the investment world, including nearly 20 years at Bechtel Investments, where I had the opportunity to work closely with George Schultz. Right. For those for those not familiar, George Schultz, um, after he uh, leaves Washington as Secretary of State, he transitions back to San Francisco and Bechtel, right? Right. He had yeah. um, been president of Bechtel um, before he became Secretary of State, and then he right. came back when he came back in 1989. He was on the board, and he was also chairman. He was on the board of Bechtel Investments. Right. Uh, so he was very enthusiastic about the demographic analysis that I'd been doing, um, and uh, he became an important supporter and really um, one of my biggest internal clients for many projects. He was also my chief distributor of, of many briefings around the world. I later came to Stanford to work mm -hmm. at the Center on Longevity, where I was director of the program on global aging. Mm -hmm. Then I jumped at the chance when Secretary Schultz invited me to join Hoover to work on demographics more broadly and write a book. So here I am um, finishing the book and dedicated it in part to, to George Schultz. 
That's very sweet. Uh, don't give away the contents of the book. Let's save that uh, for the deeper in this conversation. But what exactly inspired you to turn your work into a book? I'm always curious because we have a lot of fellows who write a lot of columns. They do a lot of white papers, but I'm always curious as to the nexus into turning it into a book. Well, I had a lot to say, um, mm -hmm. and I I had been working on demographics for a while, and I had been doing individual uh, doing briefings on individual countries and specific trends, and. Right. After many years, I had come come up with sort of this big picture of of changing demographics, and and what I thought I could contribute was this sort of global framework of change. And I had in mind, um, so my work is not academic, so but I, I was mostly writing for the business community. And right. then I realized that that I had three audiences. One was the business community, which I was familiar with from Bechtel, and then the second was policymakers, and the third was the general public who knew a lot about, well, all three audiences cared about global events, um, and they had some knowledge of, of, of demographic change. So my goal was to take what I knew and, uh, and present a framework for readers so that they could have a big, a big picture and a comparative per perspective on, on demographic change, and also a longer term perspective than most people were, were used to using. Um, and what I had decided was rather than do a deep dive on a particular country, there are lots of reports on, on individual countries. But so rather than do a deep dive, I decided to take a, a 30,000 foot perspective and present this comparative perspective. Um, so you could compare countries from different regions and, and have a, a um, uh, working understanding of, of the change that was coming. And initially, um, my working title was Demographics Behind the Headlines. And right. George, George really liked that title. Um, and that captured the idea that um, the, basically the premise of the book, that if you understood uh, demographics, you could better understand the news and you could make better decisions. Right. And I very much like the subtitle of Demographic World Tour, because that's what you do. You literally take us on a, a, a tour of the world to tell who else shares space with you in terms of looking at, at demographics. Who would you consider to be your peers, not if not your rivals, just who in whose space are you with right now? Um, well, there's a guy named Joe Chamey, who used to be head of the U.N. Population Division, and he writes mm -hmm. um, broadly like this um, once in a while, does country studies. But mostly he he writes um general pieces he he has a column and he he has a, a a book out called um fertility life expectancy and migration which are the three drivers and right. um so he's he's um uh a peer who i think think highly of um and then there there are many people at at um uh well nick eberstadt has is a china expert and mm -hmm. we've we've worked with him over the years um, there, when uh, George had George had the uh, governance project, uh, we called on demographers from all over the world to present individual country studies. Okay, so we're going to do things a little differently today, Adele. Number one, I'm going to begin by uh, throwing a pop quiz your way. So, <laughs> get pen and paper ready. Here we go. I'm going to ask you uh, several questions related to population and population quiz. Um, so first, these are all true or false questions, Adele. I want you to answer accordingly. Question number one, Adele, the world's population is soon to reach 8 billion people, meaning it's doubled in the last 50 years. True or false? 
Okay, so is this a trick question? It's a trick question. So okay, the key phrase soon to reach 8 billion and it's doubled in the last 50 okay. years. According to the UN, the population mm -hmm. reached 8 billion on November 15th. They right. have a very precise estimate. And it hasn't doubled over the last 100 years. It doubled over the last 50 years. So grew right. even faster than your question implies. Okay, so yeah, so we're past 8 billion. Okay, so when do we hit 9 billion, Adil? Um, you'll see that in slide one. Okay, giving away the show already. And uh, a surprise of, so 50 years for doubling the population. That's kind of a pretty major goof if the expectation was uh, doubling in 100 years. Well, I don't know who said doubling in 100 years, but yeah. Um, but um, but the growth is slowing now. So right. that's, that's for most of us, we think that's a good thing. And, and okay. you'll see that. True or false question number two, Adele. China, home to about 1.4 billion people, will continue to be the world's most populous country in the foreseeable future. False. China's population will start shrinking very soon, and um, India will surpass China and remain the most populous country. Mm -hmm. in the and we're going to talk more about China um, in this conversation. Question number three, Adele. Between now and 2050, more than half of the projected increase in the global population will be concentrated in eight countries. True or false, Adele, they're all in Africa. True, half the population will be, con half the population growth will be concentrated in eight countries. False, only five of them are in Africa. Three of them are in Asia. Right. The five African ones are, do you know off the top of your head or shall I read them? Egypt, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. Nigeria, and Tanzania. Okay, and the three non-African countries are, and I want you to explain one of these, uh, we have a little bit of controversy over, but what are, what are the three non-African nations? India, Pakistan, and the Philippines. And the Philippines, you put an asterisk next to. <laughs> well, so if you, were, if you were a reporter or a UN writer and you wanted to say half the population growth comes from how many countries? You'd mm -hmm. set this up and you'd you'd figure out when you reach fifty percent. Um, so the Philippines is a little is smaller than the other countries. So it's a little bit of a uh, you have to pay attention to these lists. But the thing that's important is that most most countries are small. So it's right. not unusual that half the population growth would be highly concentrated. That part's not unusual. Um, but but the growth rates are really interesting. And what's interesting about this question is that it used to be true that the population growth was concentrated in Asia, but there's a big shift now and it's now concentrated in in Africa. Now, I didn't mean to malign the Philippines as being no. small because they've really had some rapid growth, but but it it it's an outlier on the list. Okay. Uh, while we're on the topic of Asia, Adele, true or false, Japan's birth rate now exceeds its death rate. True or false? False. It's the opposite. The death rate is higher than the birth rate, which means the population is shrinking. And because they do not have much immigration, uh, that contributes to the population declining. And how long has that been the case, Adele? Because it seems to me I've been reading about this story for quite some time. Uh, I think it's been um, since about 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I mean, the, the rates crossed around 2010, so the natural decline uh, occurred about then. Right. And there's just been a very long conversation about Japan and fertility rate, which gets into conversations about lifestyle and work versus play and so forth. Right. Japan's done, you know, we, we should follow Japan because of all the uh, attempts they've made to uh, enhance their workforce through technology. And, and they've made a big effort to try to get more women into the workforce. Um, mm -hmm. 
probably that hasn't worked as well as they had hoped. Um, uh, but but they're at the they're the old, the 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 most uh, they have been the most rapidly aging and they're the oldest country. So we should look to see what might work um, okay. from their experience. Let's see if you can score 100 on the pop quiz. Adele, final question. True or false, Russia's population continues to grow at a healthy rate. False. I'm not sure when it was growing at a healthy rate, um, but it's it's starting to decline. And they've, they've had some some little blips and bulges in their in their population, but it's mostly um, set to decline because they have a, a, a low fertility and also not a very high life expectancy. I saw Suzanne Adele, I think the uh, State Statistics Agency of Russia put it out, uh, claiming that something along the lines of 80,000, uh, the uh, Russians are populations uh, shrinking by about 86,000 people a month. Yeah, I've seen that statistic. And and so for my purposes, what I try to do is is use uh, the UN data so that I mm -hmm. can have comparable sources. And, and the UN does all the digging with the um, specific country census bureau. So then I can use the UN data as as a solid source. Right. So that strikes me as kind of the perfect storm of, um, of you know, bad lifestyle, if you will, bad health, longevity. Uh, it doesn't help that you're sending young men into battle in another country, I suppose, as well. But uh, a lot of people hear Russia and they just think this is a problem driven by vodka, but it's probably a little more complicated than that, right? Well, vodka is really important, but um, <laughs> to the story, um, but it is more complicated. And, and um, the downturn in Russia's population occurred in 1990 after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they could never, they never really got medical care right and the distribution of goods and, and medical care. So they struggled with that. They had an increase in life expectancy um, after that, but it's still much lower than, than most of the other industrial countries. Ukraine has a similarly low life expectancy, but, but, but it's much low, lower than the other industrial countries. It's unusual. And contrasting that, Adele, where would you turn to find longevity growing? Uh, Scandinavia, for example. Well, life expectancy is growing everywhere. Right. Um, it's been on the. Uh, it's been an upward trend almost everywhere. Um, we have little blips of, downward to reflect famine and COVID and yeah. war and COVID and right. epidemics. Um, and typically, those are those are little blips. Um, mm -hmm. And and. You hope that it's not declining life expectancy. You hope that that whatever that the countries can put policies in place that allow uh, medical care and lifestyles to improve, so that life expectancy goes back up. Well, I have some examples in the book where where uh, some countries had a decline in life expectancy of a few years, and then within a few years they were back on track. Others um, are on a lower trajectory. So um, it, it just depends on on what the what the cause is and and what the policies are. Okay. And uh, it's been on the client here in the US, correct? And I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say it's dropped from 77 to 76 or 78 to 77, something along those lines. Right. It's dropped recently over, over the last couple of years for two reasons. One is COVID, um, which affected mostly older people and, and the opioid crisis, um, which affected younger people. Um, right. So you have those two things um, that are causing a downturn. At the same time, you have some scientific advances um, that balance some of that out. But on net, we had this decline. Um, I don't see it as declining um, on a downward trajectory. I just see it as a, as a temporary blip. I think um, 
Um, it, it's fascinating to look at these statistics in the CDC's reports because you can look at all the, the death rates by, by category and the opioid right. crisis is an unintentional act, uh, sort of an accidental uh, on their, in the same category as car accidents. Um, but you can see the detail and, and, and you, can, you, can just, you can sort of figure out, gee, why aren't the scientists working on improving life expectancy with regard to that issue or you know, in, in slowing traffic to improve traffic safety to reduce traffic deaths? So, so looking at those statistics is really, it, it's informative when you, when you think about what, what you want the right. policymakers to be focused on. And that brings me back to one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because I want, I, George Schultz believed democracy was not a spectator sport and you yes. should be engaged. And so if you have demographic knowledge, you can ask the policymakers questions like, what are you doing about life expectancy or what are you doing about um, childhood mortality? Right. And final point of clarification, Adele, when we talk about life expectancy, we're talking about somebody born this year. In other words, somebody who is watching this show and they're 75 years old, they are not going to grab their heart clutching. My God, I have one year to live. We're talking about people coming into the world now, right? Right. Well, the most life expectancy numbers that you see are um, life expectancy at birth. Right. Um, but there are there are a series of numbers that would be life expectancy for somebody at age 75. And that's that's been going up, but not as much as the ones at birth. And the ones at birth go up dramatically um, when a country has improved medical care all of a sudden. And ours went up when we had, you know, started public sanitation and 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 nutrition and, and medical care. And, and that's what's happening in many of the developing countries that all of a sudden they have improved sanitation and so their life expectancy goes up. But it's also the other thing that's odd about the life expectancy numbers is mm -hmm. that we statisticians sort of assume these things where we say it's the life expectancy of a child born today, assuming um, today's healthcare and today's death rates. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're um, a futurist, you would say, well, I think a child born today can live to 100, not 76. Um, so, so that assumes that you have a model of, of healthcare advancement and technology and all the innovations. And so you have to be careful when you look at the numbers, what, what they're, what they mean, um, because many people do believe that children born today can live to a hundred. Okay. So let's go inside the book. Uh, for those of you uh, watching this, who did not pay attention at the beginning, the title again is new landscapes of population change, a demographic world tour. It's available at the Hoover press. If you want to go into hoover.org and look it up. Um, what I'm going to do Adele is we're going to look at six charts that you were kind enough to provide to us. We'll do about five minutes on each. I think this is a good way to explain kind of what's the heart and soul of this book. So if we can, let's call up the first illustration. Uh, this underscores the role that Africa is playing in population shift. So this answers the question about the 8 billion and the shift to Africa. So it answers right. two of the pop quiz questions. Um, you can see on here, um, the two verticals are 2020 and 2050. So mm -hmm. you can imagine where the 8 billion line is and you can see how, how fast the growth has been um, since 1950. Um, but that uh, you can see the slope of the line is now um, tapering off. So growth is slowing, which is most of us think is a good thing. Um, but the big news is the shift to Africa. So over the next 30 years uh, until 2050, Africa accounts for about 60% of the total population growth. Right. After that, they account for 150% of the total population growth because we see that Asia is projected to decline. 
and we already talked about this in the pop quiz, uh, mm-hmm. where China is declining, but India is taking off. So that's right. what makes that that arc for for Asia. Um, and so, but this is this is really big news. And one of the important things about charts like this is that many people have a very short time horizon, the business world in particular. Uh, but in order to see what's around the corner, you have to have a longer perspective. And so if you only had a 10-year perspective, you really wouldn't see the drama that's emerging in, in this picture and that you should start preparing for. Adele, could you uh, dive a little deeper into Africa in this regard? So much news that you read about that continent, uh, it speaks to an awful existence. We're talking food shortages and famine. We're talking about war and strife. We're talking um, quality of health care, health crises, and so forth. And yet we have this relentless growth in population. How can you have both at the same time? Well, you you can't. That, and that's one of the reasons why these African countries have a very low life expectancy. Um, they have bad health care. You, you named all the problems. Um, one of the things about this orange band here on this chart is mm-hmm. that it shows Africa, but it's also um, the shift is to the population shift globally is to the least developed countries, those with the least capacity um, for addressing any challenges. Um, they have the least capacity, the least infrastructure, the worst education. And so this is a humanitarian issue. And it's something that right. that we rich countries are going to have to decide what what we might do to help, whether there are investment opportunities we can make. I mean, you know, we we China is is investing all over Africa, uh, partly for its own benefit, but partly to have inroads into this this huge population. Uh, so we need to figure out what what we want to do um, in that regard. And Adele, can you explain why Latin America, Caribbean, North America, and Europe are just buried at the bottom of that chart? <laughs> They're buried because they're small. Um, they started small. And the, the things that drive this chart, uh, as we talked, uh, the fertility rates are high in Africa. They mm-hmm. were high but falling in Asia. So that's why Asia's population starts to slow. Um, and they're very low in Europe, below replacement rate. And Europe is aging. And you can see its population is shrinking, although it looks small on here, but it, the population right. is shrinking. Um, uh, and North America is, is growing. Um, partly because we assume some migration into North America. And, and Latin America had a fertility decline, but it, it, it wasn't as uh, steep as North America. Um, and just to, I don't know if you can see the, the Oceania line. Lots of times Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea are included in Asia for convenience and because it's small. But this is a strategic area um, important for uh, the Indo-Pacific. And so I showed it as a, as a small little line that we need to pay attention to. Okay, you mentioned fertility. So I think this is a good time to bounce now to our next graphic. Um, I find this combination, conversation to be fascinating uh, because we mentioned this during the pop quiz with Japan. Uh, it's a lifestyle question here in the United States. It gets into a very complicated question in part about women uh, in terms of motherhood, when to become a mother. Women have options today they didn't have a generation ago. Um, I believe also, Adele, when we, as we look at this uh, and we look at uh, uh, births for women, 2.1 uh, births per woman is considered to the replacement level. So if we can call up the uh, second graphic and let's talk a little bit about fertility. Okay, so fertility is defined to be births per woman. Um, right. And and that's more akin to say family size. It has nothing to do right. with 
with uh, ability to conceive. It's really just a demographic number. Right. Um, and, and the idea is replacement rate, I show it on, on this slide at 2.1. Um, mm -hmm. That's a long-term replacement rate. So it doesn't mean that if your population, if you get your fertility rate down to 2.1, your population will stop growing. It right. doesn't mean that at all. And that's been a surprise around the world. It's not equivalent because once you have a large population of childbearing women or child, child uh, age of childbearing, um, you have a potential huge growth in population, even if they all only have two children or even one child as in China. So mm -hmm. let me just um, focus on, I have three groups of countries here. Yes. Uh, at the top, you see these African countries with two African countries with very high uh, fertility rates. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo has the highest uh, on this chart, but it's not the highest in Africa. Um, and you see that it it increased um, during a time when healthcare was improving. Um, mm -hmm. And the same with Nigeria. So this uptick in, in fertility is kind of discouraging, but at least it's starting to come down. And uh, with more education and more healthcare and, and education on, on reproductive health, these numbers will, will come down. Um, the group in the middle is really interesting. We've got China with a very steep decline in, in right. its fertility rate. And, and actually it, it declined, its fertility rate declined way before the one child policy was put into place. And right. there was great concern about the exorbitant, the very extreme population growth. And again, that was because what, what they call population momentum, they had a lot of women of childbearing age. And so the, the population was continuing to grow, even though they had this later, slow, slower, um, fewer babies uh, policy. And that's when they put in the draconian one-child policy. But other countries um, throughout Asia, the Asian tigers in particular, also had very steep declines in fertility without draconian policies. They did it because of the economics and education and their industrialization. Um, we see Mexico had a, had a similar decline. It wasn't quite as steep, but yeah. what's interesting is that mm -hmm. India has had a much slower decline in its fertility rate. And that's what gives it its continuing population growth. So it gives, it has a whole different age profile from China. Um, and that's uh, you know, rooted quite a bit in this different pattern of fertility. I, I could keep you on this topic for a long time, but a couple of things I noticed here. First of all, when we look at the United States and Germany, uh, moving forward from 2020, Adele, on this chart, very flat lines. So not much had changed there. Second thing I notice, Adele, is that no nations are moving in a northeastern direction here. Nothing is going up. Everything is sideways or going down. But then thirdly, and uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Adele, you look at China and India and you see this precipitous drop. Is there a correlation here between fertility and economic activity? Um, in, in several ways. First of all, economic growth leads to declines in fertility. Yes, um, that's what I'm getting at. But <laughs> declines in fertility, because once you have fewer children being born, you have mm -hmm. a smaller pipeline of workers, and that leads to um, a change in, in your workforce, and that threatens economic growth in the longer term. It takes a while. It takes a generation or so before that shows up. So, so it affects it in both... Um, as a, as a driver, um, but also as an outcome. So you have many countries, many of these countries are gonna see uh, workforce declines because of their steep drops in fertility. 
Um, and you're right to notice that there's no northeastern direction on here, right. despite many pronatal policies and many efforts to get women to have more children. Um, China's desperately trying. They they now have a three child policy, tax incentives, um, cash payments, new cars, minivans. Uh, uh, so so it it looks as if none of those pronatal policies are very effective. They may work to encourage the different timing in in and um, having a, a larger family but basically there's no evidence that that any of the pronatal policies work once it's you know it's a, once women enter the workforce and become empowered over their own bodies they get to make their decisions and then finally I'm curious Adele about attitudinal approaches here in terms of fertility and having children anecdotally and you probably know people in the same situation I know couples who have one child and then they have a very long debate over having a second child and oftentimes they have a second child and parts of the first child has a a sibling but then it becomes a question of a third child and this gets down to the question of lifestyle and work but also economics can I afford to have a third child will they have a good lifestyle and so forth uh, this is an American problem Adele I'm curious if other nations are struggling this as well, and it's leading to an attitudinal change in terms of having large families. Um, well, for sure, family size has gone down, except in Africa. And, right. and there's a tradition and a cultural tradition in Africa to have larger families. And that right. some of that is rooted in the agricultural nature of their economy. But, but a lot of it is also just plain uh, this cultural bias towards wanting large families. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the things that, that we should pay attention to is whether any of the um, challenges that we face, whether it's climate change or the COVID crisis or whatever, um, would encourage people to think about wanting larger families. We've, we've gone from having what they call a bushy family tree uh, to having you know, a really sparse uh, skinny tree. Yes. So um, there might be some, some new cultural things that encourage larger families. Uh, so we need to be on the watch for that. Maybe there'll be, you know, new, we'll need some new schools instead of turning the schools into other, other uses. Maybe we'll turn them back into schools. Uh, but, but it is important to consider the cultural ideas in, in different countries. Okay, uh, let's now shift to life expectancy, Adele, something I take quite personally as someone who gets way too much literature from AARP and reminders that my time on the planet is limited. We mentioned in the beginning during the pop quiz about uh, longevity here in the US, uh, which I believe is actually over a two-year period, Adele has now uh, had its biggest drop uh, since the 1920s. Uh, curiously enough, you know, I delve into politics. That is my world here at Hoover, Adele. This actually was a campaign issue by some people, I think, kind of scraping for votes. Uh, it was pointed out that here in America that more Americans die young in states with conservative politics. Take that for uh, what it's worth. But let's shift now and look at um, uh, fertility, if you will. Uh, and if we could call up the slide, we are now looking at um, uh, global population age 65 and older, uh, expected to double by 2050. If we can see the slide, I'd like to get Adele's comments on this. So uh, there it is, Adele. Right. Population okay, goal. So, so this slide, there's there's really no no surprise in this slide if you think about it. So mm -hmm. this shows the the population age 65 plus um, by region in in billions. So it's no surprise that Asia has the largest. Um, but it is kind of shocking to see how big China's older population is. And right. let me just say a word about the term 65 plus. It's the old retirement age. Um, yes. And and it was just a benchmark, so so it doesn't. We we're still using it for comparative purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but it doesn't mean that these people are that somebody age 65 plus is is no longer in the workforce or or uh, no longer capable of doing anything. Um, they're not frail. Uh, it's a whole new definition, but we're, we're <clears throat> we've been using it for a while. So population age 65 plus doesn't doesn't mean frail. And soon we'll have better data so we can look at at a different brackets within the older population. But right now, much of the reports are, are lump all these, lump the whole population together. But it does give us an idea of, of what, the, what the trend is. And this is kind of an astonishing uh, set of numbers for China, uh, especially since their 65 plus population is very different from say the 65 plus in the United States. They're, they're less well-educated and certainly China is known to be getting old before it gets rich, at least in the United States um, and other rich countries, um, we have the wherewithal to address some of the aging problems. But in China, they have major housing issues, healthcare issues, and, and um, their population is projected to double to nearly 400 million um, by 2050. And uh, there's a phrase that you like to use, you call it a global challenge. Now, somebody sitting here in the United States may be thinking, what does it matter to me if China's population is getting older? But explain to Dell why this is a global challenge. So populations are aging everywhere. Um, and maybe it looks more extreme in Asia, but in all the other regions, populations are aging. And, it's, and it looks like it's happening kind of all of a sudden. So if you just look at the 2020 line, um, you see that there are 700 million people age 65 plus. But what's happened is that with the increasing life expectancy, um, we have more people reaching these older ages. And so it's like all of a sudden over the next 30 years, that number is going to double. And, and so there needs to be some adjustments um, made by policymakers to accommodate that shift. And um, there's a whole trade in, in um, caregivers and uh, building uh, senior housing. Uh, so it's it's something that hasn't been well addressed. And that's why I call it a global challenge. And and okay. the speed, it's the speed of aging that, that makes it even more significant. And here we are yet again, Adele. I look at the bottom three. I look at Latin America, Caribbean, North America, Europe. And if you uh, look on the chart from 2050 to 2100, again, it's a rather flat line. Well, this is, this is the below replacement or the replacement rate fertility that... Yes that suggests that that over time, you then have a stable population. Okay, uh, let's shift now, Adele. I wanna talk about um, uh, about uh, the pace of aging uh, in, the, in the next uh, several decades here. Uh, having worked in California state government in the past, I can tell you this is a topic that lawmakers hate to talk about because there is a very big problem heading California's way. Uh, this has to do with pensions. This has to do with draining on the healthcare system, uh, the workforce ultimately. Uh, this is kicked around in politics a lot, Adele. It's called the quote-unquote aging time bomb by a lot of officials. Uh, but you have a different uh, phrase for this. Uh, you call it the silver tsunami. If we can call up uh, her next illustration, uh, why don't you explain to us what the silver tsunami exactly looks like? Okay, well, first, I, I think that that slide I just showed shows the silver tsunami, um, mm -hmm. the, the huge wave. So globally, the share of 65 plus increased from, will increase from approximately 9% um, now to, um, what is it, 20%, um, 22% mm -hmm. um, by, by um, or 16% by 2050. And the US um, has a different trajectory. But what's interesting about this slide, 
um, <clears throat> is the um, what I call the the pace of aging. Um, mm -hmm. And if we start on the left side, <clears throat> yes, you can see the U.S. had about eight percent sixty five plus in nineteen fifty at the beginning mm -hmm. of the, towards the beginning of the baby boom. Um, mm -hmm. And then it just sort of inched up a little bit. And then um, you can see around 2010, when the boomers turned 65, that percent 65 plus started going up. And then right. it, it, it goes up at you know pretty steep pace. And then it kind of levels off. It keeps on going um, because there are fewer and fewer children. So the percent 65 plus goes up. Um, but, but it's pretty gradual. And you think about all the turmoil <clears throat> that you just mentioned about the pension planning and, and the right. housing and all that, that we've had over this long course of uh, reaching um, this age, um, then you think about these other countries that are aging much faster. So they, they, they need to repair faster. So what I did um, in this chart, and I have another chart in the book that, that compares this, you see, it took the United States. Oh, and also some benchmarks were 7% 65 plus and, four, and doubling to 14%. So it took the United States 69 years to increase from that 7% to the 14%. Okay. So here's Japan, what I'm looking. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry, Adele. Go ahead. So Japan had a much steeper increase. Um, so it, it increased three times faster than the U.S. And that's, you know, we've, we've been hearing a lot about Japan's aging, and this shows how fast they age from like 5% to, to 28% over a very short amount of time. Um, so over 27 years. And we see the blue line there is South Korea. They're going to increase even faster. And um, China um, is on pace to increase a, a pace similar to Japan. So you can see the red line for China is about the same slope as, as Japan's. So that means they're increasing you know, three times faster than the US. Um, so they need to adapt much more quickly than we did. And, um, and, and it's time to start working on that. Okay, uh, I want to briefly get your thoughts on South Korea here, because if you look at this chart carefully, Adele, so you go all the way back to 1950 on the far left, and there's the United States and um, the uh, aging population, it's a little under 10%. If you go forward uh, on the right to about 2060, 2070, uh, the United States creeps just north of 25%. But here is South Korea, Adele. Uh, starting in 1950, it is about 5%, if I read this correctly. And by 2060 to 2070, it peaks at 42%. Uh, we talk about the economic miracle that is South Korea in terms of just being built out of you know devastation in the 1950s. Um, explain how this fits into the context of the South Korean story. So South Korea had a very steep fertility decline when it started industrializing, um, mm -hmm. steeper than about as steep as China's. Um, but it's continued, and um, so they have they have a, a, a well. Let's say a, they've got pronatal policies a, to try to get women to have more children. Um, okay. But the problem is that they had, as a result of the declining uh, number of children, they have a shrinking workforce, um, right. and and that you know all, both of those trends feed into having a higher share of old people. Um, mm -hmm. South Korea also had, due to its healthcare policies and its rapid industrialization, they cared about. Um, healthcare, and so they have one of the highest life expectancies, uh, especially for women. And so they have an older; they have many more people reaching the older ages and a higher share. So they they are um, they're not the the only one in this category, but but their forty two um, percent sixty five plus seems um, really a major challenge. Uh, and there is Iran in the middle of the chart making its first appearance in this conversation. 
Right. Um, so Iran is really interesting. It had a steep fertility decline, but about 20 years later than China's. And we, we think of Iran, I mean, it's a Muslim country, so the idea of a, of a fertility decline seems, seems unusual. But in fact, um, there were many policies, there were four different fertility policies or family planning policies. The Shah had uh, in, uh, introduced family planning because he was worried about uh, population growth. Um, after the revolution, uh, the clerics put in place a pro-natal policies where they encouraged women to have children. Um, and then they realized, hey, wait a second, you know, they, they had a goal of reaching 100 million population. Um, but then they realized that that wasn't going to work very well. And so they put, they brought back um, healthcare, uh, uh, reproductive health planning and encourage women to have fewer children. So their fertility rate um, is declining, um, which, well, the steep decline has resulted in a, a, a lower growth in working age population. Um, and so then you have this higher share of, of older people. Um, and this is one of the things, it rarely gets mentioned, but, but it's one of the things that challenges their economic growth. Uh, so we, we'll probably be hearing a bit more about about this, um, right. this this challenge, along with their shrinking workforce. There are two final illustrations I want you to talk about, Adele, and these have to do with China. And our viewers should know that uh, China is a very complicated topic here at the Hoover Institution. We have a lot of fellows who devote their considerable knowledge to the to the nation. Uh, we have a lot of schools of thought. We have fellows who think China needs to be handheld and negotiated with and kind of coddled and treated very well. We have other fellows who think that China is now our bitter rival. And uh, we have one fellow who calls it Cold War 2.0. Um, but there is a question if we don't, if we do want to view China as a rival and Adele, you may choose to call it a military rival, an economic rival, uh, global geopolitical rival, what have you. There is a question about what China is going to look like moving forward. So let's call up the first illustration because this uh, really kind of breaks down what the China uh, working age population is going to look like. Right. This is this is kind of an astonishing chart when you think about this is the factory floor of the world. Um, and this shows the, the huge run up. The top line is the, the solid blue line, and it mm -hmm. shows a huge run up in working age um, and which fueled the big economic growth in China. Um, but that has that already peaked and is starting to decline. It's leveling off and is starting to decline. So, so that steep growth is matched by not not as steep, but is matched by a, a steep decline going forward. So this is this is China's workforce. Uh, the, 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 the decline is is really a threat to China's economic uh, strength. And this is what's behind some people arguing that China's demographic weakness will either make it more belligerent or less belligerent. Um, my point is that we really just need to understand what's going on there. Um, and you can see the the gray line is the number of children, and that's right. that's already declining. And the 65 plus line is gradually increased and then will take off. Um, and it'll double over the next 30 years. Um, so, so that's the, the that's the shape. And what's really interesting is that this shape of workforce growth, the the peak here, this this arc of growth, is um, it's instructive because most countries have some kind of arc of growth where where um, in the past, the, over the past 30 years with the declining fertility and rising life expectancy, you had an upward trend in workforce growth, um, which is now the trend is slowing and in some cases it's shrinking. So the shape of this arc and the timing of the arc 
are really important. Um, and, and I do some comparisons of these quote arcs of growth um, to, to, to show um, which countries are on the up, upward part and which are on the downward part. And, and then of course, the other key issue is the ratio of the workers to the retirees or workers to older people, um, because that's where the economic dependence issue comes in and, and the pension issues and caring for older people. Right. And if our viewers look carefully at this chart, they'll see that the year 2020 is right in the middle of the chart. And they're at the very top change in working age population. The decline is beginning now. So without stepping on the toes of other fellows uh, who study China, Adele, Xi Jinping wants to be the leader of China for the foreseeable future, I guess. He will want to be leader as long as he's alive, I guess. What's he doing about this? Okay, so what, there, what can there, what can he do about this? Well, he can do some things, and 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 any country with a shrinking workforce can do some mm -hmm. things. Um, you can, um, if you think about the equation for for economic growth, it's a right. function of labor labor supply and productivity growth. So, if you have a shrinking labor supply, you need to to you can do a couple things to increase your labor supply, like have uh, more worker more worker participation at, at all ages. You can raise the age of retirement. You can bring in uh, immigrants, um, or you can work on the productivity side and use technology to increase your productivity, use education and retraining to enhance the productivity of the existing workers. So there's, there's some things that, that he can do. Um, education would probably be one of the key things um, for a longer term uh, perspective on, on workforce growth. Mm -hmm. And then let's go to the final chart, Adele. Uh, and this, by the way, is the answer to the question of what is exactly on the illustration of Adele's book, when, not if, but when you get the book in the mail. Uh, in this chart, Adele, this explains how China's workforce compares to other nations. Okay, so um, the purple area here is that that arc of workforce growth that I just talked about. Um, and and we see the, the, the point of the the, the top, the peak for China occurred about 10 years ago, um, and and it's on the down downturn now. Um, and this this chart basically has a, a number of countries. This is one of my favorite landscapes. It, they're layered, so you can see the shapes of smaller countries in the front um, and larger countries in the back. So you see India in the back. The workforce growth is continuing and will continue for some time, and it's a much more gradual um, change. Um, but another surprise is is Nigeria, um, yes. which is coming out of um, from behind the U.S. There, it, it, its workforce is projected to double um, between now and 2050. You can't see that because it's behind the U.S. But after 2050, it's projected to double again. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo would would be on would be uh, have a similar pattern. Um, two other African countries on here are are the orange color Ethiopia and um, Egypt there on, on the right. Um, and then the US is the blue area and we don't really have an arc yet. I mean, we have a little bit of an arc, um, but the key thing about this, this UN projection is that it assumes that migration um, or immigration will continue at the same pace that it has been. And that's a pretty critical assumption. So, so um, there are ways we can improve our, similarly to what I described for China, that we can improve our workforce growth. Um, we can uh, increase the labor force participation. We can mm -hmm. raise the retirement age. We can bring in immigrants. Um, but we can also do a lot in terms of our technology for improving productivity. 
Um, but it will be interesting to see. So, so this comparison, it'll be interesting to see what, what India does to uh, improve its productivity and also to see what happens in these African countries, which, which um, have many of the humanitarian and, and, and healthcare problems that you mentioned earlier. So you're the economist, I'm not in this conversation. Can you explain a little bit about how decrease in working age population ties into both local economic growth, Adele, but also higher labor costs? Because it would seem the higher labor costs would be a problem because China, of course, has this fantastic export economy built on one premise as far as U.S. is concerned. Stuff is made cheap. Right. Well, it used to be that that China had had cheap labor. Um, but, right. you know, we we moved around the world to where labor was cheap. And now it turns out that you can you can you can get um, you can change the way you use labor. Uh mm -hmm. And so, so that's one economic implication. But, but basically, the, the key thing to, to, to watch is that of the 15 largest economies, eight of them are projected to have shrinking workforces over the next 40 years, um, beginning now. So what happens is that, that um, they need to adapt right away uh, to their shrinking workforces through through some of the means that I mentioned, either technology or 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 immigration, for example, uh, and and the thing about this this big change is that you can you can project it coming, and so you shouldn't be surprised about it. Um, uh, and you can you, since you can see it coming, you can you can develop uh, responses. Um, in terms of economics, what we'll see is a shift to away from the large mature economies to some to some developing economies to some emerging markets but as you can see on this chart um, many emerging economies whether you well Mexico you can look on this you, you see it has the same kind of arc but it happens later so these are things you can you can watch for and you can um, adapt accordingly the countries can adapt and investors uh, can also adapt uh, where they're spending their money Okay, Adele, we have uh, shown a lot of problems facing the world in the next uh, half century to a century ahead. I'd like you now to channel your George Schultz. You may go find a nice sports coat. He always had wonderful sports coats to wear, except when he got into deep Princeton mode. That was always an iffy thing with him. But let's channel your George Schultz in this regard. George Schultz loved to convene meetings and put bright minds together and solve problems. He was about identifying problems and solving them, not just grabbing about them. So you could convene a group of smart people to talk about this, Adele. What exactly are the key challenges ahead in the near future? What prioritize the problems here? So I would say um, the first problem is that this, this big suite of population growth to the poorest, most vulnerable countries is mm -hmm. a major challenge that we all need to deal with because the challenges that come from, from either migration, climate change, political upheaval will affect all of us. Um, the second uh, is the pace of population aging. Um, that's accelerating so fast and countries aren't ready with their pension plans and their healthcare or their housing. Um, the third is the workforce growth challenge, which I just uh, was talking about with slowing workforce growth everywhere and shrinkage in, in many parts of the world. Um, and the fourth challenge is, is the what we can expect in terms of increased migration stemming from economic and environmental challenges. Um, countries will need to effectively manage their both their inflows and outflows to avoid uh, major disruptions. And because we can see a lot of this coming, there's there's there is a way to plan for for some of this. Um, but basically, all four of those things I mentioned um, are 
can be seen as human capital issues. Mm -hmm. And so human capital management is increasingly important for managing all of these changes. And on the bright side, which George Schultz would look at, um, we can see these challenges coming. We, if we look in the right place and we look carefully, we can see them coming and uh, we can prepare in advance. Uh, and we should be preparing now, not in 30 years. And I think he, he would say, we need to look at demographics differently and with a long-term perspective. I always view uh, policy challenges in Dallas something of a dance. And anytime individuals dance is the question of who leads. So who leads this conversation? Well, that's very interesting because each country's got a. We we well, we 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 had the climate conference. We had right. the G twenty. Um, it's not clear who who's leading. Um, yes. And one of the things um, uh, with global population changes is that there's no governance. Uh, there's no governmental authority. I mean, we've got we've got many. Um, international bodies that address these things. And um, we need to figure out a way to make them more effective uh, at addressing all the all of these challenges. Um, because uh, the the changes will happen and we we need to um, let's see if I can convene the right group. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't I don't know how to make the international groups more effective. I think broader membership in some of the groups would, would be helpful. We don't see Africans participating, African countries participating right. very much. And I think that, that one of the things that we can do, which, which I talk about in the book, is that individuals can do a lot more. Um, by educating ourselves about these changes, we can talk to policymakers, we can channel our investments, and we can channel our charitable contributions in ways that that could make a difference and get people to be more aware of the changes that are that are um, underway. Mm -hmm. And then finally, takeaways, Adele. I think you just mentioned a takeaway in terms of what you hope readers will get after read the book. And Dear readers, by the way, this is not PhD level reading. No offense, Adele, but this is not an 800 word book. It's very easy to sail through. It makes sense of a lot of things. But what do you hope the reader will take away after reading this book, Adele? Um, well, before I answer that one, let me just say that if you want a quick read of the book, just read the list, just read the captions of all the charts. There's 100 <laughs> charts. And if you read the captions, you'll get a really good idea um, of what's going on in the book. Um, so so the, the takeaways are that that what I try to do in the book is describe patterns of, of, of growth and groups of countries so that there's a way to, to think about the 200 countries in the world and which ones are similar and which ones are different um, and what the differences are. Um, I take a long term time, uh, a, a long time frame so you can see the inflection points, um, but but that's a little dangerous in terms of accuracy. So I suggest having alternative scenarios so that you can think about if we were successful at reducing fertility rates and increasing life expectancy more, um, what what would these look like? So so I I what what I'm hoping is that people will begin to understand these demographic shifts um, and understand that they affect everything. They affect us locally, personally, our families, nationally, globally, and, and we should understand these changes so that we can start addressing them. Adele Hayatin, thanks for visiting the Hoover Book Club and congratulations on a terrific, terrific publication. Thank you.
It's titled, Once Again, New Landscapes of Population Change, a Demographic World Tour. It's published by Hoover Press. I've seen the copies in the Hoover Press waiting for you to purchase. It means you can get them by going to our website, hoover.org, and ordering it there. By the way, while you're on hoover.org, I strongly suggest that you sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which comes out five days a week. It means that any time Adele publishes, it gets in the Daily Report. You'll find out what she's up to. You can also see our biography at hoover.org. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of the Hoover Book Club. Until then, take care. Thanks for watching.